Welcome to this episode of the Breathe Easy podcast series entitled Clinical Allergy Testing. This podcast is produced by the Allergy, Immunology, and Inflammation Assembly of the American Thoracic Society. Today, we will discuss the science behind allergy testing, indications for use, and application to treating allergic disease. My name is Richard Ramanel, and I'm a fellow in pulmonary and critical care medicine at Emory University. I'll be moderating our discussion. Joining me today are Gerald Lee, Associate Professor of Medicine, and Marin Kurovilla, Assistant Professor of Medicine, both allergists, immunologists, and members of the Division of Pulmonary, Allergy, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine in the Department of Medicine at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yes, I'm excited for the uh, opportunity to speak. This is exciting. (laughs) Well, let's jump right in then. Uh, So we will be beginning uh, by asking the question, what is an allergy test? And, And when we say clinical allergy testing in practice, what does that refer to? So there are several different kinds of allergy tests, and the one that we routinely perform in clinic looks for a very specific immune response, that is the presence of IgE, and this can be done through either skin prick testing or in vitro testing, that is, and the, one that, the method that we routinely use is the immunocap. When you think about the application of those tests and what they mean for the patient in front of you, what, what informs the decision, or what are, you, what are you trying to elucidate when you order some of these allergy tests? Uh, I mean, a, a lot of our patients are wondering potential triggers for their disease, you know, what in their environment they can do outside of medicine to control their disease, and I think that that's what allergy testing involves. You know, we know that, according to GINA and uh, NHLBI guidelines, that allergic exposure is going to be one of the components of good asthma care. And so I think that's our role in the case, to give a patient insight on ways to control their respiratory disease like asthma through uh, avoidance environment control. Interesting. From a, a pulmonary perspective, when I think about patients who I'm trying to endotype and phenotype, we often order allergy testing within the context of of endotyping. How does allergy testing inform your Mm -hmm. assessment of of an endotype for asthma? So in patients with severe persistent asthma, asper criteria, I pretty routinely test all patients for environmental allergies. However, it is a misconception that asthma when eosinophilic is always allergic in etiology, and there is a large population of asthmatics are generally older in terms of onset and much more severe eosinophilic disease that's characterized by type 2 inflammation and activation of similar pathways, but absence of clinically relevant allergic sensitization. And so it always has to be taken in context of patient phenotype and other patient factors. Yeah, and I think that's really important, that that misconception, because, uh, for example, the Mm -hmm. new up-and-coming NHLBI draft that's up for comment right now is making the suggestion that really in the absence of a positive value test, people shouldn't be doing broad-based environmental controls routinely. Um, And that's why we really want to tailor our treatment according to the patient and not assume that all eosinophilic asthma is necessarily allergic. Um, From your practice, can you provide an example of a situation where uh, a patient had discordance between, a, like you said, Dr. Lee, a broad, sweeping, generalized avoidance policy and a specific allergy and what, what that looks like clinically? 
Oh, I mean, I, I think people have very algorithmic ways of discharging patients in the hospital. Like, here's this handout where you're doing, you know, dust mite interventions and, and that sort of thing. But, but again, as Marin mentioned, if someone has, you know, all the features you would expect from an allergic phenotype, high eosinophilia and elevated IgE, you know, we do find those patients with absence of set sensitization. And, and certainly we really need to focus on what is the right tailored therapy for that patient. That's why it's really important to do these investigations to convince yourself. Well, that's a wonderful segue into our next section. So when you think about which patients uh, within the context of, of uh, pulmonary asthma practice population and, and your population should be tested, what are some of the indications for clinical allergies against them? Um, like I said, I routinely phenotype all patients with severe persistent asthma, and that does involve allergy testing as well, sort of to include it or take it off the table in patients with clinically suggestive features. Yeah, and you don't want to you want to make sure that all the options are available. So, for example, again, I keep on talking about that draft guideline that's uh, under comment right now. One of the weapons other than environmental control is desensitization or immunotherapy, right? Is that another way other than medications as a tool to manage the patient's disease? I mean, we I think we want to make sure do we have do we know all our options on the table for our patients with asthma? It's also important to keep in mind that just the presence of a specific IgE alone does not necessarily equate with clinically relevant allergic sensitization because globally, if you look at the presence of serum-specific IgE to foreign proteins, it's present in about 40 to 60 percent of the general population, but it does not necessarily translate into true allergy. And overall, allergic rhinitis only affects about 10 to 30 percent of the population despite a much higher degree of sensitization. And similarly, we have to diagnose patients with allergic asthma with the caveat that patients with severe eosinophilic asthma can have extremely high total elevated IgE levels and thus possibly false positive reactions to specific allergens that are not necessarily clinically meaningful. So how do you... Going back to that, the patient with elevated total serum IgE, which is extremely high, and sort of the, the pan-positive uh, radioallergo immunosorbent testing to localize regional aeroallergens, dust mite testing, et cetera, how do you tease through uh, what is clinically relevant and what is not within the context of that patient? Oh, my goodness. I would find that immensely challenging. And for example, certain allergens are ubiquitous, right? So trying to tease out dust mite without direct challenge, which is, you know, it's not like in my office I have like a chamber where I'm just going to pump in <laughs> dust mite and see what happens. But, but certainly patients will endorse history. They will endorse seasonal variation. They'll endorse sensitization, uh, symptoms around cats or some sort of occupational exposure. So this is where the history is the most important first step in asking the question, is there in uh, a relevance, a clinical relevance to the testing that you're receiving. In that case, how frequently would, do you typically test your patients? What would you say? What informs that decision? So it really depends on the age of presentation. For instance, during early childhood, we might test 
say, a few years apart to look for evolution of sensitizations, but in adulthood, the pattern of sensitization does not tend to change greatly over time, and in fact, waning of sensitizations has been observed through the decades, and so we would generally probably just test on one occasion. You know, uh, the, the good thought experiment is this. If, if someone has been exposed to an allergen continuously for 20, 30, 40 years, and the testing is negative, you know, at age 41 versus age 40, they're going to start developing Ig. doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. That's different from someone who's visiting the United States and decides to emigrate to our country and have seen allergen for the first time. Certainly, adult onset sensitization does make sense. You know, it takes about a few years to learn about that. So I think the context also makes sense, is, is important as well. All right. When you think about testing for the first time, what choices uh, do we have in our clinical repertoire as far as types of testing, modalities? Um, where do you all begin, and where would you move to as second or third steps? You know, so uh, most uh, pulmonologists will have access to serum testing. So if you go to the reference lab's website, they will give specific panels based on the region that you live in that has the clinically relevant airborne allergens specific to that area. And, and so allergist immunologists, when they do skin testing, use sem similar table based on the local aerobiology. But most panels include uh, outdoor pollen, uh, outdoor indoor mold, as well as furry animals, cats and dogs, probably a pest like cockroach and dust mite. That's the typical main panel, though there are uh, obviously variations depending on where you live. And as allergists, we routinely perform skin prick testing in clinic, which consists of a similar panel of allergens based on regional variations. What informs the decision to start with the serum analysis of IgE against regional aeroallergens versus the skin prick testing? If a patient has been off of antihistamines for seven days, we routinely perform skin testing because results are available within 15 minutes and it is just as sensitive, if not more so. However, there are certain situations where patients are not able to discontinue their antihistamines, and in those instances, we would send out for immunocap testing. When you think about the, the utility of them, so you have a patient who has uh, severe persistent asthma, who has uh, positivity either by skin testing or immunocap to certain aeroallergens. How do you counsel those patients? How do you, uh, what are the ways that you encourage avoidance? So uh, we have obviously very well-written handouts that we have available, but uh, you know we can go by one allergen at a time. So many of our recommendations can are freely available to anybody. It's the uh, practice parameters for different allergens like furry animals or dust mite or so on. So as you can imagine, those parameters would say stuff like dust mite avoidance would be lower humidity or mattress and pillow covers and washing sheet, sheets weekly. Um, obviously, furry animals. I can tell you I've been an allergist for, you know, 10 years, and I would say the number of patients who have removed a pet from their home based on testing is <laughs> like less than 5%. You know, it's like you're telling them to give away their child or something. So, um, by the way, I apologize for the pet lovers. So, um, 
so certainly we we mitigate that by just trying to reduce exposure, meaning the bedroom, and then certainly pollen. Obviously, uh, there are multiple sources for pollen counts. The one that I most typically use is through the National Algae Bureau, which is a branch of the American Academy of Algae, Asthma, and Immunology. The website is pollen.aaaai.org. You could find your region. There's probably a pollen counting station in most areas of the country. There's actually an email uh, uh, that you can input. If you made an account on the website, you input your email. That could be sent to you if it reaches a certain threshold. I advise my patients moderate. So, uh, you know, we really tailor environmental controls based on evidence-based guidelines of, you know, uh, of, you know, allergen reduction. Um, and again, anyone can look those up uh, at, you know, allergyparameters.org, which is the main uh, allergy immunology practice parameters website. All right, and conversely, for the patient who has a significantly elevated serum IG with severe persistent asthma and more of a pan-positive uh, RAS mm -hmm. screen, how do you handle that patient and, and what are some of the ways that, that you would um, uh, treat them? So it would really depend on patient presentation and patient history and whether we thought that this pan-positive testing was clinically relevant in driving their symptoms. If environmental measures and medications were insufficient to control uh, their asthma, then the next step would be adjunctive, either allergen-specific immunotherapy or the use of biologics. And again, it would just really depend on, it, this is one of the situations where shared decision-making really comes into play now with the advent of all of these new biologics that are available and different forms of allergen-specific immunotherapy also. So there's this just a lot that goes into making that decision. Um, it's a lot easier seven or eight years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, things are a lot better. I mean, I think patients do want choices um, and certainly want to have multiple goals, right? They want to have quality of life. They want to uh, avoid side effects. Um, they're interested in pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic options. And I, I think that these are all the things we consider when we're making a treatment plan for our asthma patients. And finally, how do you handle the patient with discordant results? Either they insist that they're allergic to the cat at their mother-in-law's house uh, versus attributing it just to the mother-in-law. No, just <laughs> <laughs> versus, uh, you know, that, that they have low serum IgE titers against cat or allergens or negative skin prick testing in that situation. So, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of reports, mainly out of Europe, about local uh, IgE production. It's actually fascinating that you could have a person with normal skin testing, but... Uh, if you do like direct allergen challenge, they have evidence of mast cell degranulation local to the tissue. So, you know, we really have to recognize that false negative skin testing is certainly a possibility. I, I think ultimately, remember, if a patient is stating that that re exposure is relevant, uh, I think we do have to, again, consider as that part of their management plan. I think when it gets tricky, is obviously when it's something like occupational because that would probably require some sort of burden of proof 
probably that patient probably would need to be challenged mm -hmm. uh, because of uh, the implications of an occupational exposure. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of the occupational exposures are non-IgE mediated too. But yeah, in in those situations where a patient has discordant skin or in vitro testing and in contrast their history, I usually order the corresponding either skin or blood test results to sort of corroborate the initial results. And 10% of all allergic rhinitis has been attributed, at least in Europe, to local allergic rhinitis or entity. So I always offer that as a possible explanation to patients. And either way, it doesn't necessarily change management, except that they would not be a candidate for allergen-specific immunotherapy. So are there any new treatment modalities or anything on the horizon to help identify those patients? Or if it were an occupational case, what would be the next step in that situation? So in terms of environmental testing, I'll have to defer to Dr. Kerville if there's anything I'm missing. But in general, the next phase for assessment of allergic responses is what we call basal activation testing. So, you know, if we think about skin testing as one measure of looking for activation of mast cells through crosslink of IgE, but if you want to do an in vitro version of that, then you could take, you know, basophils are essentially cousins of mast cells. They have the Ig receptor and so on. You could marinate that allergen with a person's basophils and see if they release histamine or uh, express activation markers. So whether that translates to the environmental arena, I'm, I'm not aware of any studies at this point. But that's what I would see as one of the future yeah. uh, diagnostic modalities. Right. Another recent diagnostic modality that I think has significantly enhanced our understanding of allergen responses is component testing, mm. um, especially with things like mold, where in the past we used to consider both the sensitivity and specificity of IgE testing pretty low. Um, presently, with the recognition of individual allergen molecules and the availability of testing against either recombinant molecules or purified molecules derived from natural sources, we're able to obtain like much better results with uh, yeah, and get much better answers. So to head towards our uh, stunning finale of this podcast, I did want to pick your brain a little bit about some of the newer uh, therapies that have become available, um, immunotherapy and some of the monoclonal antibodies against components of IgE. Can you tell me about what your uh, experience with that has been, um, what types of patients you would consider that within the context of severe asthma to maybe um, help uh, achieve uh, asthma control without additional medications? I think there's no right or wrong answer. Generally, if it's a child with predictable viral-induced acute flares of asthma, I still resort to omalizumab just due to the demonstrated antiviral effect. In patients who have the more severe eosinophilic phenotype with an older age of onset, I lean towards the anti-IL-5 molecules. But again, there is no real algorithm in this regard. In patients with concomitant nasal polyps and asthma, the answer would be, for me, it would be dupilumab. Uh, but again, I've just found so much individual variability in responsiveness, and I think it just underscores the fact that asthma itself is so heterogeneous, and there's just so much more to learn about each individual phenotype. 
also uh, expanding on what we've already discussed in your question about immunotherapy. Um, you know, with that uh, upcoming revision uh, EPR4 guidelines, re-looking at the evidence for immunotherapy for, uh, you know, allergic asthma, you know, if we're thinking about interventions where if the core or a predominant trigger and cause of the patient's symptoms is inhalation of allergen and type 1 reactions in the airway, rather than putting them in a bubble or, you know, restricting activity, giving them a lot of medicine, we, again, immunotherapy presents as a third option to decrease their um, sensitivity to that allergen and potentially reduce the amount of medicines that they acquire. And I'm going to make the argument in medicine, unfortunately, we need more of those sorts of therapies, therapies that reduce the amount of medicine that they're on. Um, unfortunately, as of 2019, we can't grow new lungs. You know, I mean, I mean, listen, once we do that, I think a lot of us are going to be out of business, right? But as of 2019, we can grow new lungs, but we can change or modulate the immune system so that if allergen exposure is the cause of inflammation rather than dealing with the consequences of mass activation, we can prevent it to begin with. And I think patients at least should consider that as one of the modals of therapy, especially if we're talking about side effects of therapy, growing children and, you know, a, a growth uh, you know, reduction of final adult height or potentially other steroids uh, side effects. So uh, I think I'm not saying it is for everyone. Certainly it is a very time-consuming therapy, but I would also highlight is the one of the few the therapies where we're trying to get people off medicine, essentially, or reduce it as much as possible. So along those lines, how would you counsel a patient that you think is appropriate for some sort of immunotherapy? What would you tell them, and how would you instruct um, up-and-coming pulmonologist on how to, you know, discuss what they're going to meet with their allergist. Well, about. I think the, uh, so my my pitch to patients who have found to have positive allergy testing, especially if it's a perennial allergen that they cannot avoid that's indoor, um, obviously we're going to always do environmental control and medical therapy. But at least I introduced the concept because it is a shared decision-making equation where the patient has to be willing to, again, undergo the potential risk of a systemic reaction, which is rare. It's about, you know, one in a thousand or mm -hmm. something like injections, but it's still present. And the time it takes to have frequent visits to the doctor's office. So clearly it's not for everybody. Um, certainly there's expense as well. But I, I think patients should always be counseled about all their options when considering what therapies work best for them in the management of their own asthma or their child's asthma. All right. Well, we are uh, nearing the hour, as they say. Uh, do you have any final comments you'd like to get in about this topic before we conclude? I mean, I, uh, I, I think that you know, when we're talking about algae testing, we're really talking about treating the entire patient and considering what interventions can we do to help a patient's asthma or respiratory disease. And certainly when we initially think about asthma, I think a lot of emphasis is placed on medical therapy, you know, like drugs. But I sh we should also recognize that 
you know, exposure, you know, other comorbidities, um, and, you know, social determinants of health. There's other ways to intervene on this disease. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I would always keep that in mind when treating asthma. And, and I, like I said, I, 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 I'm an expert in one part of that, but I still consider the entire thing other than let's just give this drug, if that makes sense. Can I tell an anecdote about a patient that I just saw yesterday? Please. Who is uh, out of the blue, her asthma got significantly worse. And I had to put her on a high-dose ICS lab, an allergy tested her, found that she was extremely allergic to dust mite. Comes back three months later off all her medications, doing great, broke up with her boyfriend whose house was apparently extremely dusty, and doing perfectly fine now. So just highlighting the role that environmental and allergic exposures have to play in driving asthma-based symptoms in some patients. Absolutely. Well, with that, we will conclude our discussion of clinical allergy testing. On behalf of the Allergy, Immunology, and Inflammation Assembly of the American Thoracic Society, I'd like to thank Drs. Lee and Kuravilla for joining us today, and a big thank you to uh, our listeners as well. Please check back for new Breathe Easy podcast releases through your podcast app or online at thoracic.org. Great. Thanks for having us. That's great. Thank you.